Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 72. This week we talk with Mike Rohde about sketch notes, dedicated hosting for $3.40, and you literally cannot pay me to speak without a code of conduct. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics. Their developer toolkits provide world-class controls targeting Windows, Web, iOS, Android, Xamarin Forms, and more. Whether you're an individual developer or part of an enterprise team, they have something for you. Check out the latest today at infragistics.com. This week, we have Mike Rohde. He is a designer, author, and illustrator. He's a full-time UX designer in Milwaukee, and he's the author of the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook. Welcome, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Carl, what do we have for feedback this week? This week, our feedback comes from Twitter, uh, from Brett Enet. I That's his Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't look up his full name. But he says, thanks for the show. I learn new things every time I listen. Great work. Uh, thanks, Brett. Um, we try to learn new things every time. So that's what makes it interesting for us. And just we just hope that we can pass it on. And uh, thanks for that input. And that gets you, uh, makes you the winner of the Infragistics Ultimate License this week. If you want to win the Infragistics Ultimate License like Brett did, uh, tweet at us, uh, comment on our Facebook page, our website, uh, anywhere else where we take feedback. There's quite a few places now. Yeah, send us a ransom note. Yeah, iTunes, whatever. <laughs> yeah, we love those iTunes reviews because those really help spread the word about the show. So we uh, we really appreciate all the people that went out there and did iTunes reviews. Okay, so let's jump into the news. And it looks like the first thing that you want to talk about, Carl, is the topic voting. It looks like you filled in a whole bunch of potential topics out there. Yeah, so I, I updated our Trello board, made sure that it had a full topic range. In fact, right as I was about to do that, somebody asked me where the link for this was. Okay. So I thought it was just useful. You know, every few episodes, we'll bring it up. If you want to hear about a topic, um, look at our Trello page to uh, do the show topic voting and uh, vote up what you think is interesting. And we'll make a higher priority to get that kind of uh, information onto the show. And if there's something you don't see up there that you want to, just once again, send, a, send us a tweet, send us a message on Facebook, email us, whatever. Um, we we want to do stuff that's interesting for you. Yep. And it looks like the top two right now are Azure IoT Suite and uh, DevOps and Release Manager. So if you are interested in something else, make sure you get out there, suggest a topic or vote on one. Okay, so the first thing here, this is uh, something I found this week. Uh, This is dedicated hosting for $3.40 per month. So this is not a VPS. This is not a virtual private server where you're actually sharing resources. Uh, This is actually your own server. The catch. So what's the catch? Yeah, there's always a catch, right? So the catch is they are ARM-based servers. And I mean, these are small, these are like phone-like, you know, CPUs. So basically it's an ARM V7 chipset. You do get a couple cores, you get unmetered bandwidth. Um, I just thought this was interesting. I, I don't know how useful this is in the real life. I mean, even if you are on shared resources, uh, that, you know, with, with today's virtualization technology, it doesn't matter which, you know, provider we're talking about, like they're able to, to make sure that you don't have the, the noisy neighbor effect. Um, so I'm not sure that you actually need a dedicated host, but this is, this is really interesting. And, and actually I, I almost find it more interesting from the sort of a technical achievement point of view. I mean, they figured out how to put hundreds of servers into, um, you know, like a single rack space. So it says, 912 separate computers into a single server rack. And that alone is pretty cool. I just think that's a neat technical achievement. Wow. Interesting. So they stripped, they stripped a yeah. bunch of uh, old Newtons, right? From the, they found them in the. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, this is, this is pretty cool though. I mean, $3 and 40 cents a month. I mean, you could run like a Node.js website, you know, this, this isn't giving you any kind of redundancy or anything. So, I, you know, 
I'm sure there are people that are using this in interesting ways. I don't necessarily recommend this for, for anything in particular, but, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just kind of a, a neat technical achievement and it, it'll be interesting to see where this uh, pushes server technology. Okay. Uh, let's see computer science without the computer. You want to talk about this, Carl? Yeah. Um, so first and foremost, uh, this is a, a set of, uh, materials where you can learn the concepts of computer science without needing to like work them out on a computer, you know, get the, all the abstract things out. Uh, the second thing is this is, I, you know, meant for five to 12 year olds. So if you have, uh, you know, a child that's interested in technology, you can work through this with them and kind of get them the, the really core basics, you know, the, the history of computer science and without, you know, all the technical overhead that sometimes you jump right into. And it's, it's pretty in depth. Uh, it's comes in PDF and video format. Some are in, in just PDF, some are in both. Um, and it covers all kinds of stuff from data to algorithms, to procedures, um, to cryptography and, and so on and so forth. They, they hit all the, the big notes of this. And I thought it was just a really great resource. And, uh, they even mentioned, you know, it's designed for five to 12 year olds, but it definitely doesn't stop there. They've right. taught adults with this yeah so uh, heck if, if you need a, a refresher on finite state automata you know check it out boy do i yeah <laughs> I, I went through and some of the topics that i was interested in like compression as an example i looked in there and and they actually have like some worksheets and i'm like this is this is a really neat way of learning compression because the reality is if you go out there and you search for one of these topics a lot of the resources you find are going to assume that you know everything about it and it's you know they're just going to give you like the the super advanced version this assumes that you're starting from a place where you just don't understand it. So this is sort of like the dummy's guide to, you know, whatever each topic is. And then being able to do that with just without all of the noise. So I, I, I thought the site was really clever from that perspective. Uh, nullable, nullable reference types and nullability checking. In the new C sharp seven uh, proposal. So um, what this means, and I, I, I do kind of get lost a little bit ways through here, but it allows you to say, hey, this this certain type can never be nullable. Uh, apparently, this was something that people have wanted for a long time, but it was considered too difficult to put into the previous frameworks before Roslyn. Yeah, well, I've heard about people just saying that C-sharp just never should have had nullable types, like period. Yeah, they, they, they go through a lot of the edge cases because if, if you have something that must have a value, but you don't, but you instantiate a new one and don't know what the value is and don't want a default value, what do you put in there yeah it sounds like a little bit of a pain but i mean the 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 other side of the coin is that you know as we know like pretty much almost you know i just say like 99 percent of errors that you see in c sharp are like object reference not set to an instance of an object and you got to go troubleshoot that i mean it's, it is like the number one problem yeah it, that message can't be more vague yeah <laughs> exactly and yeah it usually tells you nothing about it so um this is this is an interesting way of layering this in because they obviously can't just say like uh, you know what, guys, we just decided to take uh, null types out of C sharp. Like that's not going to work. So this is kind of neat that you can uh, decorate it and, and add that back in. So that's a that's a clever approach. So you said the next version of C sharp. So this is a proposal for a C sharp seven. Yes. OK, so, so it's not it's not <laughs> finalized, but it sounds like uh, by all the excitement that it's definitely going to be a uh, very strong under very strong consideration. OK, very cool. Uh, and then the last one here, you can literally, you literally cannot pay me to speak without a code of conduct. Yeah. So, so this is a blog post by, uh, Rachel neighbors and, uh, you know, she's been in our industry for quite a while and she, she tells a story in this blog post that, uh, came back from 2005 
where she just had this really awkward incident with, you know, a male person at a conference mm-hmm. and it reading through it, it is like, yes, that is creepy. And she, you know, codes of conduct has been uh, a very upfront topic uh, for a couple of years since there was, I, I can't remember the exact incident, but there was a pretty big incident a few years ago. I think it was at a, a PHP or Python conference where there was just some guys making some really inappropriate remarks. And what she's saying is, Hey, we need to, as conference organizers, make sure that everybody knows that this is a safe place, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your background is. We need to make sure that everybody can go there, learn, have a good time, and feel comfortable doing it. And I'm guessing that most of these conferences are actually okay with you copying what they have, at least as a as a starting point, right? Like, I don't I don't think if you're a new conference or a new event that you have to think that you have to start from complete scratch. There's probably a lot of people out there say, you know, hey, start with this. Like, this is a good foundation and uh, line this up with with uh, what you're trying to do. Yeah. And as someone who's, you know, goes to quite a few conferences and, you know, speaks at them as well, I would say nearly all of the really good ones to go to already have something like this in place. Yeah. And they're usually good. Like you read them and you're like, oh, that's reasonable. Like I, I'm glad that that is in place. Like every, I think everybody looks at it and says like, I'm glad, mm-hmm. I think I'm glad that that's in place. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so let's talk to Mike. So Mike, um, it was, it was interesting recently, you know, I, I followed you on Twitter for a while and I've had your, um, the, the sketch note yes. handbook for a while. And I've, I've really found it fascinating. And for whatever reason, I, I wasn't putting two and two together to, to have you on the, on the podcast. And then I saw a tweet out there that mentioned something about a podcast. I'm like, Oh, we got to have Mike on there. And you know, I, I, I contacted Carl and I said, okay, we got to have this guy on here. This is, this is about drawing things, but, but you know, bear with me, this makes sense. And, and finally I, I explained it to him. So, you know, our listeners, you know, I think it'll, it'll become apparent pretty quickly why this makes sense for them. And I, I think every developer, I think this really applies to them. And, and there's, there's just a lot of good psychology and um, experience that you have that, um, uh, that will help everybody. So Mike, do you want to give us a, a little bit of your background? Sure thing. Um, maybe the first thing to do is uh, I'll start with explaining what sketch notes are, and then I'll tell you a little sure. bit about how I came to them. Um, I, sure. I call sketch notes notes plus. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're like the notes you take now, but you're simply adding visuals to them at a very simple level. That's what they are. It's uh, adding drawings or icons or typography like lettering to uh, the notes that you take. And it's the thinking, it's basically thinking of your notes in a, as more of a map, a visual map of what you're hearing or thinking or um, trying to express. So they can be used in lots of interesting ways. Um, and the way that I sort of came to them was I was really frustrated as a note taker. I was sort of a fanatical note taker, more like a stenographer where I captured everything that I heard in meetings. And it was really, mm-hmm. really uh, stressful, I guess, you might say it was kind of, it became a burden to take notes for me. And I didn't really know what was the way out of it. And uh, as a designer, and I think developers deal with this a lot, uh, we're always faced with uh, limitations of some kind or another, right? You got, you got, you don't have the machine you want, or you, you know, you've got a time frame limitation. So it's just a normal thing in life that we deal with limitations. Uh, in this case, I didn't have limitations. So I put them on myself and went from a, a large, I think it was an 11 by 14 book with lines, and I uh, wrote mm-hmm. my notes with pencil. Uh, and the reason I used pencil was because I needed the ability to erase them because I was worried about making mistakes. Um, right. So I, I, I pushed myself in the opposite direction. I had a little moleskin pocket uh, notebook that I'd purchased at uh, a bookstore recently. 
uh, and this was years ago, and I just didn't know what to do with it. It just sort of sat around. It's such a beautiful notebook. I didn't know how to start with it. I wanted to do something important, and you know, a lot of people say this, and they just don't know where to start at. But uh, I thought, you know, maybe I should use that book for this. I should take that book. Uh, if I use a small book, there's no way that I can write everything down because I'll literally run out of book. Um, and then I thought, well, what would what would be the opposite of using a pencil? And, and it, to me, that seemed like using a pen because I it would force me to be more deliberate about what notes I captured on the paper. So the way I approached my next note-taking situation, which happened to be a conference, was to use this small book and a gel pen and uh, mm-hmm. and get in the situation where um, I was starting to to listen and thinking like, well, wait a minute, maybe what I should do here is analyze in the moment and capture just the things that are meaningful to me. Because the problem with the whole note-taking scheme that I had before was I would write all these notes and I would never go back and go through them to see what was valuable, right? And by then, there was such a humongous amount of content, I just didn't want to go through them because it was just uh, it was like hacking through a jungle with a machete. It was just too much work to sort of dig through and find the nuggets in there. So I thought, well, if I I'm, my goal is to get the nuggets out of this talk, maybe what I should do is analyze in the moment and just capture those things that are valuable now um, and use this uh, this opportunity to do that. And by having a pen, I think it pushed me in that direction because you know, I had to be deliberate about what I would put on the paper, um, and having that pen sort of forced me to think through things and listen and sort of analyze and then put down the things that seemed to be relevant to me that way. And so from there, it just sort of took off. I kept doing it at conferences, and sharing was a big part of it, putting it online. And uh, the first ones were up on Flickr because their Twitter really didn't have a, uh, you know, a foothold yet. Uh, but eventually, foot, uh, you know, Twitter had an impact, and uh, through sharing it, I ended up uh, doing conferences professionally. So I would have an organizer come and have me sketch note the event and share that online or as a PDF to their attendees. Uh, and eventually it led to the opportunity to illustrate some books and then write some books, the two books you mentioned in the beginning, the Sketchnote Handbook and the Sketchnote Workbook as ways to teach other people how I sort of got out of this jam that I found myself in. So, Mike, have you been uh, spying on me? Because, you know, you mentioned the word stenographer and that that really resonated with me. And and and, and the funny thing is, whenever I was in school, when I was in uh, high school and college, I my philosophy always was like, I'm going to listen instead of writing notes. And it actually worked really well because I actually would listen and I would retain it. And then it's funny because after college, when I got into the workplace, then for whatever reason, I flipped and I switched, I switched into a stenographer. And what you're saying is absolutely true, right? So I, I, I take tons of notes. I never look at them again. I have them like every once in a while, you know, maybe they make a good reference, but that's really the exception and not the rule. Um, so it's, it's interesting that I sort of flipped and I didn't even think about it. Like I, I knew that it was better to listen than, than to sit there and, and be a stenographer, but I, I fell into that habit. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I had a similar experience too, that when I was in uh, high school and college, I actually looked back and I realized I was sketchnoting. And, uh, for some reason, when I graduated college and got into the work world, I also got into technology much deeper and I would take notes with my laptop or if I yeah. did write notes, then they were this, crazy uh, detailed collection. And I, you know, I think there's value in that to a degree, but because you're so focused on getting things right, you're not really analyzing, you're just writing verbatim. Um, There's been some recent studies that where they took uh, laptop note takers and longhand note takers. So not even fancy notes, just writing longhand notes. Uh, And they had them watch, I think just 
uh, of a recorded video of a speaker. Um, and then they tested them, and they tested them about a week, I think it was a day later and then a week later. So a day later, everybody was pretty equal. And then a week later, when they compared the longhand note takers to the, the ones who typed the notes, they found that the longhand note takers had a better grasp of the concepts. And what they found uh, through the research was the people that were taking longhand notes were actually analyzing what was being said, and the people that were typing were actually just typing what they heard. And they did another test, I think it was mm -hmm. um, afterwards, to just verify, like, well, what if we tell the typist to not just type what you hear, but to analyze what you're hearing? And they couldn't break, they couldn't break out of that mode, like they would fall back into the verbatim notes just with a keyboard. So there's there's something interesting about handwriting. I think eventually you face this moment where you're like, there's no way I can write everything down. So I have to just listen for the key ideas and then you switch into that mode. So it is an interesting observation that you saw in yourself. And it's interesting how we flip. We flip uh, sometimes we don't know why or we don't recognize it immediately. So that's, mm -hmm. that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the mind and body working together to increase re retention. How, how does this work? Well, that's an interesting question, too. I think um, for many people, I don't know if it's for everyone. I haven't, haven't seen any scientific studies on this, but I think the movement of the hand and your whole body being moving, it sort of changes, like your blood flow changes, and I think the way you're listening changes. Like it, it sort of one, that one little variable changes, and your approach to listening, I think, changes. There's something about being kinetic, especially like um, maybe if you're you tend to be a doodler, or, or maybe you're ADHD. And or we have a son who's ADHD, and I think he he has a hard time sitting still. So moving actually helps him um, think. It helps him understand. So that's something interesting that maybe plays into it. And I just noticed that when my hands are moving and I'm using my full body, um, my whole self seems to be more engaged in the whole thing that I'm involved in, whether that's taking notes at a conference or uh, using sketch notes for generating ideas or capturing uh, an, event, uh, an event like maybe travel or food or something like that with the sketch note approach. Yeah, I've heard that with like exercising, you know, and listening to podcasts and, and things like that, where you have better retention. So it seems like there's a lot of I, I don't know if there's any like, you know, um, specific evidence out there, but I'm, I'm certainly hearing a lot of anecdotal evidence and and and, and like rough evidence that, that that's absolutely the case. So I'm curious, um, you know, for our listeners, like what do they need to what are they what are the bare minimums to actually get started with something like this? I mean, can they use a, just whatever pen they have and, and whatever paper they have, or, or do they need to go get this other stuff? Like I have, I have an, I have a nice gel pen and I have the Moleskine uh, notebook and like, what do you actually need? Well, I, I'm a real big believer in uh, being uh, tool agnostic to as much as possible. Like uh, in many yeah. of the workshops that I use, we just get a ream of paper, crack it open and hand out, you know, even like ballpoint pens or, or, you know, flare pens or something oh, really? inexpensive. Okay. I really like inexpensive tools. I also like expensive tools, mm -hmm. but for different reasons. So uh, the reason I like inexpensive tools is it sort of moves it to away from the tool. Like we have this tool thing where we think if we just get the best tool, then we're going to be better at something. And I don't, I'm not sure that's true. I think uh, some I've seen some beautiful work done on really rudimentary stuff like, you know, printer paper and a pencil from school, right? I mean, it's really, in a sense, a tool. So I like... I like that the idea of sketch noting can be expressed even with these really simple tools. So if you have a, a ballpoint pen and a sheet of paper or lined paper, any kind of paper, you can do this. Now, I will say that uh, you know your moleskin and your gel pen are probably going to perform better than a than a spotty ballpoint pen that sometimes draws and sometimes doesn't, or you know 
if the paper is really thin and you're using uh, ink that bleeds through it, it's going to frustrate you, right? That's going to be a distraction. So, so it, it'll work on any mm-hmm. tool, but I think sometimes some tools work better than others to take away friction. So that's where, yeah, and, you know. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's not like we're talking about like spending a fortune here either. No, <laughs> I no. mean, next to your, you know, $4,000 MacBook pro, I think you can spend, you know, five bucks on a good pen and, and, you know, 10 bucks on one of these notebooks. Cause I went, I got actually from that conference, I got this uh, Moleskine notebook. Um, they actually handed some uh-huh. out and, um, and I have a, a gel pen here, you know, they're not expensive. It's, I think the gel pens are like two or three bucks. And what's, what's amazing to me is it, it looks like a regular pen and it looks like regular paper, but yeah, there really is a difference. Like the, it doesn't leak through, um, you know, you could do this on a regular sheet of paper, but, but I, it, you should try it, I think with the, with the good stuff, because, uh, it, it just, it just feels so much better. Your, your stuff looks better. Um, and then like you mentioned, just those, those distractions go away. Um, so one question I have, you know, I barely know my way around a pen. Uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering, like for our listeners, is this something like anybody can do? I mean, you mentioned these workshops. Do you ever have people that, that come in and they're like, they're like, you, you will get nothing out of me. Um, you know, this is going to be an exercise in frustration. And have you been able to turn them around or, you know, who does this work on? Well, that's one of the most exciting things, uh, more than anything in sketch noting that, uh, I really enjoy is seeing people that come in saying they can't draw actually performing and doing sketchnoting to the degree that they're able. Uh, one of the big uh, messages in all these books, and when I talk or present, is this uh, phrase that I say, ideas, not art. Um, unfortunately, uh, art sort of has this baggage it carries with it. I love art. I think it's really important for us to have art as part of our lives, music and art in all different forms. But I think um, art as a performance becomes a problem for us because somewhere in junior high school, you know, maybe we're a pretty good artist and then we encountered somebody who was better than us. And then rather than try and improve, we just sort of shut it down, right? Or maybe, you know, in class, you know, these people got A's because they were good artists and you got a D because you weren't. And it just sort of, it didn't encourage you to continue, right? Because it was a performance-based thing. But we're not talking about art in that same way. Like we're not doing life drawing. We're not doing shading necessarily. Like if you can do those things, more power to you, you know, bring those bring those to it. But we're really talking about uh, capturing and sharing ideas. And once you sort of move to that direction, um, you can sort of take the art baggage off the table. And I think I find whenever I uh, begin the workshops and talks that way, people get a lot more comfortable because it's not about them performing as an artist. You can still use a really, really bad drawing of, you know, something to express an idea. And if it helps you walk through, let's say, a presentation um, it doesn't really matter how good the quality is. And so then the barrier basically becomes, are you willing to show your, you know, improving drawings uh, to compu- communicate your ideas, whether that's a whiteboard or a piece of paper to get your idea across? And that's really what it comes down to. And, you know, that's that's maybe a more challenging thing is just having, encouraging people that they can do more than they think they can and that it's okay if it's not perfect. It's really if this idea gets transferred, that's the focus. And if it looks like bad art, then who cares? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is this, you know, w- once I learned this sketch noting technique, is this something I can use all purpose everywhere? Or is there, do you find that there's some scenarios uh, that sketch noting really shines through a little bit more than others? That's a, that's another great question. Um, the, the other thing I like about sketch noting is it's pretty open in all different ways. So the way you do it doesn't have to be the way I do it. Uh, and the way I've built the community is that people share their work and they inspire other people 
whether they're beginners or they're advanced by the things that they do. And I love that people take it in different directions than I do. Um, I can't think of every possible scenario, and it's really fascinating to see how different people apply the concept in different ways. Um, specifically to your question, um, I think sketchnoting works in all situations. Um, the type of sketchnoting you do may fit better in some situations than others, and let me explain that. Um, I look at sketchnoting almost like a slider. You know, if you had a slider control, um, on one side it's uh, all text, and maybe on the other side it's all drawing. Um, and there's a slider you can move in between drawing and text based on your situation. So you sort of look at your situation. If let's say you're in a you're on a board, and you're capturing uh, high high um, detail notes in this board meeting, like things you have to act on and and you can't miss anything, right? Maybe you're going to slide that slider toward the text side. And and their solution for sketch notes there would be, maybe it's mostly text and it's maybe high density text, but maybe you use icons to help you identify the key things that you need to act on uh, and define action. So I, I recommend in a lot of the talking and workshops I do to use um, tasks like to put little boxes and you know check things you know have actions there and little icons to help you reference the things that you need to act on and that seems to be helpful. Um, and then if you are in a talk, you know, say you're in a TED talk, you know, you don't have the requirement to to deliver a report on this thing or do any actions on it. It's more for yourself. Maybe you can slide a little more toward the drawing side. So there's sort of this ability to adjust it based on your situation. Um, I think it works really well when there's um, imagery that you want to portray, whether it's an idea in your head, like it could be you know, the flow of your application, or it's, for me as a UX designer, explaining how features work. And, um, you know, where I'm at right now in uh, doing work in a small dev team, I've got a lot of front-end developers, and we sit down every Monday and spend an hour whiteboarding. So it, it applies really well there, where we'll say, okay, what's our feature today? How does it look? And we'll work through it, and everybody will talk, and they'll come up on the board, and they'll draw. And at the end, we'll have a board full of ideas that we take a picture of, and we throw it in our... Um, in our reference material. And if the devs get to it first, they build it and then they'll call me over, say, hey, does this look like what we drew on the whiteboard? And I'll say, oh, you know, move this over a few pixels and that should be red or whatever that detail is. And if I get to it first as a UX guy, I'll maybe I'll pull out Photoshop or something and I'll build a mock-up and spec it. So they got, they've got something to reference. So it can be used in a lots of different ways. And um, I could talk a little bit more about that if you like some of the different ways that we, that I've seen it used that's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear that, but I'm imagining another use case is there's there's a couple of meetings that I have every once in a while that I find very that I'm very disengaged in. I'm imagining that if I apply sketch noting to these kinds of meetings, they'll help keep my brain engaged on the topic at hand instead of being distracted on something else as well. Yeah, that's what lots and lots of people will say you that find- the, the if anything. Um, having the ability to stay engaged is really uh, helpful. So I think that's where like the kinetic part, like moving your body, being able to move your hand, like it sort of it sort of fills your mind with the ideas of that you're hearing instead of being distracted. Like, oh, I wonder if, was that a buzz in my pocket for Twitter? Or, you know, do I, do I have to email this person? Like it kind of moves you away from it. And I think the other thing that's maybe more subtle is if your laptop is shut and you're doing sketch noting, you're not going to be distracted as much to do those things. So it's in a way having that reduction in distractions by focusing on pen and paper also helps as well. But I think that would be really interesting to hear um, you try that out and see if that works in those situations. I know it works for me and many other people say that having that, 
having being involved in you know thinking through it visually really helps them stay focused. Carl, I got to interrupt this for just a second, and I want to talk about infragistics. Yeah, if you comment uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on our website, you have a chance to win the ultimate license from Infragistics. And this is pretty cool because it covers a lot of stuff. Um, they have controls for Android, iOS, Windows Phone, Windows 8, ASP.NET, MVC, WPF, jQuery, HTML5, just tons of stuff. And they even have stuff for Xamarin Forms. So if you're trying to hit all three major mobile platforms with one, they got controls to help you out there. If you need tabular stuff uh, with their grids, they got really cool controls to help make that look uh, just really sharp. Charting, gauges, barcodes, it's all pretty simple using their controls. And if you just have some uh, simple prototyping needs, they have a product called Indigo Studio too. It lets you get that prototype done so you can show this to the stakeholders and you know sell your ideas. Yeah, what I love about that, you can just send them a link and they can actually navigate through the app. But uh, what, like you mentioned earlier, all of these controls across all these different platforms, this is great. I mean, most people don't just develop one type of app now. So being able to to go and use these controls in every type of app all under one ultimate license is is really big plus. If we don't select you uh, each week, you could try again next week. And if you can't wait, they have free demos. So you can try it out for a month. Download the demos and try it today. Yeah, check it out at infragistics.com. They're a free trial, so you have nothing to lose. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you get the ultimate edition for free, which includes everything. We thank them for their support of the MS Dev Show. Looking through some of your other, because uh, you have a, a video podcast as well, um, you, you have tip, tips for how to listen at a conference, uh, the location, uh, where to be in the row, lighting. Can you, uh, you know, explain that? Yeah, sure. I, I usually just randomly pick a spot, so I, I, I'd like to hear this. <laughs> yes, so um, every room is different, and sometimes there's rooms that are just not really ideal for sketchnoting. Like I've been in conferences where suddenly all the light, the house lights go down, and it's it's pitch black, like oh crud. Um, if I'm now, what I've learned to do is I bring a little book light, you know, for reading on a book, and I'll pop that out and stick it on my notebook, and that really works really well. Um, in a pinch, I've used the the flashlight on my phone to do that. Although it gets tricky to draw and hold the book and hold the pen and and hold the phone. Mm-hmm. So having the little book light helps a lot. But so what I typically suggest is um, if you don't want to be disrupted, sort of pick the middle of a row because generally people aren't going to come all the way across the row to get out unless they're, you know, really, really desperately have to go to the bathroom or something. You're usually going to go one way or the other. So if you can get close to the middle, it's you're going to have less likely interruptions in the middle. Um, and then I... I have this little trick when I go to events. I look for the pot lights that are up in the ceiling usually in uh, ballrooms or um, you know theater seating or something. And I look for the spot where those spotlights are showing on the chair. And if it lines up for a middle seat, then I'll grab that seat. So I've got the middle where I'm not going to be interrupted. And then I've got the light above me that provides lighting uh, for the drawing that I do. Uh, now, of course, if you had an iPad or you're using, a, say, a, um, a Microsoft Surface Pro or something like that with a with a stylus, you know, maybe those prop, maybe the lighting problem is less of a deal, right? Um, I've, I still find that paper works really well for me. Um, I haven't really explored the, the Surface Pro yet, but I think that maybe that could be an interesting tool to try. So again, it really depends on, you know, what tools you have, what the room is like, and then you just try and find the best spot you can with uh, minimal interruptions and the best light. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the, the Surface Pro 3. Um, 
And and I actually asked you a while ago on, on Twitter and you mentioned that some people were doing it and I have tried it and it does work pretty good. There there's some pros and cons, but what, what kind of feedback have you gotten on it? Is there a lot of interest in doing this on a surface? You know, I hear, I hear it now and then. I think there's probably more interest in iPads, probably just because people have, it's more likely that they would have an iPad and they would think maybe I could use that. Um, oh. uh, I have used an, a Surface Pro 1 a long time ago and played with the stylus and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, at the time, I was looking at it more as a replacement of a Wacom tablet um, that I have, which was old and bulky and lots of cables to set up. Um, so it, I thought it could be an interesting tool. Of course, I only had that for a week, so I didn't get a chance to do a real in-depth uh, test on it. I have actually talked with the people um, at Microsoft um, about maybe playing with one of these Surface Pro 3s and seeing if it might work. So we, uh, I need to follow up with those guys and see if I can do an extended test and maybe do a report back. That would be really interesting. Um, You know, I, I still really have a real good feeling for paper and pen. Like I know, I know what I'm going to get out of it. Yeah. I'm I'm worked with it so much. It's sort of like if you use a tool, like if there's software that I use, like Photoshop or something or a text editor that I like, like, you know, it may even be irrational that it's maybe not as good as the new thing that came out, but you're really good at it because you've honed all these skills. Right. So it's the same thing in that sense with paper where like with an iPad, you know, it works pretty good for most stuff, but then you got to zoom it or, you know, I can't get as much on the page and maybe the stylus doesn't exactly work like a pencil. So there's all these trade-offs and it really depends, you know, what I'm, what I'm aiming to do. Um, but I tend to be a pen and paper guy for the most part. Yeah. There's definitely a difference in the, in the friction of the, the feel of the pen, but um, I would say like on an iPad, I mean, an iPad doesn't have like a proper stylus. So I, I got to imagine that that's super painful. But on, on the Surface Pro 3, I mean, the, the pen, the amount of pressure you put on it actually changes the line width. Um, it's super accurate. I mean, if you look at kind of from the side where the tip of the pen is hitting the screen, I mean, it's, it's pretty much dead on. And uh, so it, it does work pretty good. But I mean, the only difference, like I mentioned, is just like the, the friction that you get. And it is just different. So I think... From yeah. from the from my experience in doing it, I think that if you wanted to make it work, you certainly could. Um, you know, and and the cool thing is, then it's it's really easy to share because you don't have to scan it or anything like that. It's just digital from the start. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend uh, who uses who's she she may have switched to Surface now, but she was using uh, some kind of a tablet PC to do her work, um, and she seemed to really like mm-hmm. it. She liked the ability to cut and paste and move things around. So I think. Ultimately, it comes down to commitment. Like if you wanted to really use this thing, you'd have to commit to doing it and just really dive into it. I find that that helps a lot. Uh, my friend Creighton Berman yeah. has used the Surface Pro 2, I think. He did a partnership with Microsoft and he seemed to really like it. So it seemed to work really well for him. So I think, again, it's maybe a matter of commitment. Like if I really wanted to do it, I just take it to a conference and not bring any paper, right? And force myself to deal with it. And maybe the results aren't exactly what I want, but it's... um it sort of puts me in a place where I have to solve those problems. Yeah. The, the light, the backlight certainly would, would help in, in the dark situations, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious the, the book, um, I'm curious how you did it technically speaking, because I noticed it looks like, it looks like there's a lot of typography where it's not written, but most of the book is, um, basically done in sketch noting. I mean, you wrote a book about sketch noting in sketch notes, which is really cool because it shows that, it can convey all of the information about it. And it, it was probably the most fun book that I've ever read. It's super easy to read. And 
you know, I, I can just, I can remember a lot of the pictures in there. So it, it is really easy to retain it. So I think just reading the book, even if you don't do sketch noting, it like shows you that, that it actually, you know, it works. Um, but what I was curious about, like, how did you do the book from a technical perspective? Cause obviously you didn't open up, uh, you know, Microsoft word and, and start putting stuff in there. Um, you know, you sketch on it. So did you draw and then like scan and then digitize or what did that process look like? Oh, that's well, thanks for the kind words. So I'm glad that you mm-hmm. enjoy the book. And um, so I have, I'm fortunate that in an earlier life, I was a print uh, designer and production designer. So I did. Uh, <laughs> well, that's handy. I did uh, publications and billboards and logos and like anything you can imagine. So that really came in handy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the way the process I used was. Um, actually, I laid out the whole book in sketches. So I've actually got this PDF that's all the sketches of how the book would lay out, more or less, that I would show to my editors. And then based on that, we would uh, I would so I wrote the text, laid out the sketches, and then we merged the two together. And the way I worked was I would draw everything on ink and with ink and pen and paper, and then I would scan it. I have a Canon scanner here that I use. That's pretty nice high res uh, scanner. I would scan the art in. Uh, bring it into Photoshop and then clean up all the artwork and sort of get it the way I wanted. Um, you notice something too that uh, there was something that looked like handwriting but wasn't quite. That's a typeface that I did. Um, being a print production uh, designer, I knew that there would probably be changes coming in the writing and I knew that I didn't want to have to do those by hand. Um, yeah. And I wanted more of a consistent feel for the whole book so I could do lots of things. It gave me some flexibility. Um, so I reached out before the project started and was connected up with a friend who lives in Alameda, California, and he's a type designer. So he does this professionally, and he partnered up with me to create a typeface, which he used for the both of the books. And then because we had this product that was working so well for us, we actually turned it into a product and we're selling it. So you can buy it at um, at his place and also at Creative Market. It's available for sale. So, oh, that's cool. So if you need, you know, it's sort of like a cool Comic Sans, more or less. Um, mm. And it comes in handy if you want something that looks more handwritten. So it really helped me have the flexibility to make changes and to tune to tune it as a print designer to lay out all those pages and do the whole book. So I actually did all the production design on the book. Um, I literally handed the files off to the printer to be run. So uh, I'm a little bit more unusual than the typical author in that way. So not only did I come up with a concept and lay it out, but um, did all the production work. Um, and I think both books include videos. So if you're more of a visual learner, you like to see what uh, what's being done so you can understand and, and mimic that. Uh, both books have the option that include a video that my friend Brian here in Milwaukee helped me shoot. Um, and crazily enough, we did those at the same time as producing the book, which I can't believe I did both of those videos, but we pulled them off somehow. <laughs> and yeah. uh, they're really cool. I Brian's got a great style that sort of is, um, I guess you'd call it a journalist, or um, I can't think of the word I'm thinking, I'm, I'm imagining, but he's sort of like a journalist that follows me with a camera, and uh, it looks a little bit more like the common videos you see now for like Kickstarter campaigns and those kind of things. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, the, the production work on all that was um, definitely challenging, but I'm glad that I had that, that history of being a production designer to pull it off. Yeah. So I I was looking around at your books on Amazon and I noticed that you also have a Kindle version. I was wondering, because I've seen some Kindle books that are less uh, just uh, text, aren't aren't always the greatest. How well does the digital version of yours come across on the Kindle itself compared to the hard copy version? I think it actually works pretty well. Um, In both books, we had an issue with Amazon where they 
So basically, they convert PDFs over if it's a if it's a visual format like ours was, where it's not just text they can dump in. Um, and they had something that went wrong with their um, conversion tool um, that made the middle of the book completely blank, which was really frustrating. I must tell you. Ouch. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it happened twice. So I mean, it's uh, there's something that's going on in that process, but. Once, mm-hmm. once it got corrected, um, it works really well. And PeachBit actually sells the PDF version with a watermark, so it's not even encrypted. So you can sort of stick it on your Surface Pro or an iPad or whatever device you want to look at it, as long as it can read PDF, which pretty much everything seems to. Um, I think it works really well. In fact, it works really well on an iPad because it fills the screen and you can flip through it. So if that's something you have, or an Android tablet, or I think the Kindle Fires, I haven't tested on that to see what it looks like. But because it's visual, um, it works really well. Probably the only limitation is because it's a graphical book, more like a graphic novel. Um, it's not something you can easily search through, so the text isn't you know set up in that way. It, we we really structured it as a print book, and the ebook was sort of a secondary feature. It looks great, but it's not searchable in the sense that you can find a certain word on a certain page. So that's you know one of the limitations of the way we approached it. Yeah, I use my uh, Surface Pro three. I bought the I bought the Kindle version, but I use the you know the Kindle app mm-hmm. and uh, and looked at it the Surface Pro three. And it's nice having the the color come through. And uh, I thought it worked really good because the the I thought the size of the screen and everything was was perfect. So that's that's my recommendation. Yeah, and you know if you go, um, it's really nice to have the the Peach Bit version. Like Kindle is, I think, a little bit less in cost, but uh, mm-hmm. the 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 PDF that you get at PeachBit.com. It's nice because it's just a PDF file, and it's just got yeah, it's, it's got probably more convenient. It's got your yeah. name and you know embedded in there, so it's not like there's no encryption you have to deal with. The problem with Kindle is if you want to move it to any device and there's no reader, you got to right. deal with that. And so, um, so there's some advantages to each each one. Mm-hmm. So you also have two books here. If I'm just getting into uh, sketch noting, which one is a better one to start off with? Well, I think either one will work. So one of the challenges we faced with the second book was like, okay. What if somebody only learned about this book? Would we can't just leave the beginning of the we can't leave what we That's taught what in I was the first book about. out, right? Like so, what's our solution? So what we did was we basically compressed the key ideas from book one in the first chapter of book two. So it doesn't have all the samples. It doesn't go into quite the depth, but it basically gives you an overview of what that first book talks about in the first chapter of the workbook. And probably the best way to describe the difference between the two books is the sketchnote handbook really sort of introduces this idea of sketchnoting, what it is, how to do it, you know, my story, which I gave you a brief overview, and um, lots of samples from other people. So I think that's really important. Both books do have tons of samples from other people besides me, because I felt like it was important to show the breadth of the abilities and styles. Um, the first book really focuses on the concept of sketchnoting and how to do it. Uh, the second book, the workbook, takes the idea and it sort of spreads it in a bunch of dif- different directions, like um, using it for generating ideas or documenting a process that you need to share with a colleague or capturing you know, your vacation so that you can remember it or share it with your kids later. Um, you can even use it on things like uh, capturing uh, the experience of having a really good meal or watching a TV show or a movie. So there's different ways that you can capture you know, both ideas as well as experiences using this technique. So it's not limited to just going to conferences. You can actually use it to capture whatever you're thinking. It's just a thinking tool. So for our listeners, I mean, they're, they're, they're hearing about sketchnoting and they're like, oh, that, that's pretty cool. What, 
what would you say for, you know, cause we have a technical audience. I would say that, you know, they're, they're typically developers. They might be in, in other professions that are similar to, to development. What, um, you know, like what are your ideas for where they would use this? I mean, we mentioned conferences, we talked about general meetings. Um, I think we talked about some non-work related things like meals and sure. planning a trip and things like that. Like, are there other examples just to kind of get them thinking about where they would, where they would use this and apply it? That's a great question. I think if I put myself in the, in the shoes of a developer and I'm not a developer, so I won't, I didn't even play one on TV, but, um, <laughs> you know, I work with lots of developers and I, I love that they think differently than I do. And we, mm-hmm. that's, that's a great advantage to have different approaches to thinking about problems. Uh, the ways that I think a developer could benefit from this is, um, of course, going to a conference. If it engages you and you get more out of that conference because you're being visual, um, mm-hmm. that's a great first application. That's an easy one. Um, a lot of the reason we started with that with the handbook was because we thought, you know, people going to conferences, if they can just take a little bit more away from a conference that applies to their lives, like that's a huge win. Because people go to a lot of people go to a lot of conferences and it's real easy to kind of lose track of what you were learning. So that's a big first one. Um, you can also use it like on recorded videos. So let's say you're taking a course. I know courses are really popular. To sketchnote, it could be a great way to record that information, especially in development. You know, a lot of this, there's imagery that sort of goes along with what you're thinking, like those concepts you talked about in, uh, what was that, um, the computer science without a computer? So this whole idea yep. that you don't have to have a computer to understand the concepts, um, I think can work in this way too, where if you're learning concepts, you can actually map them out on the page and the nice thing about a video is, like, if you're learning something, uh, you can pause the video and sort of map it out and think through it and then verify it by continuing watching and saying, and, oh, that's that's not right. And you can erase something and sort of fill it, something else in. And it becomes sort of this reference for yourself um, to not just sit and watch, but actually get active and, and capture it. So that's another good way to use it for learning specifically. Um, I think... The thing I notice is lots of developers I work with are really good at getting on whiteboards and mapping out like structures and how things flow and and that kind of thing. Yep. And I think any confidence that helps you feel like you can um, draw those elements or think about maybe you've got a library of elements that you use as a developer to represent things, uh, to communicate ideas with other developers or you know product owners or anybody who's in your organization, if that's going to give you confidence and help you, uh, that's going to be really good. I think... The thing about going on the whiteboard is when you get on the whiteboard, you kind of own the room. You've got the opportunity to really express yourself. But even more so, if you start working in that way, you encourage other people to step to the board and also draw. And that's what we're finding on my team is by my drawing a lot, they appreciate my drawing, but they're actually doing more drawing on whiteboards too. So it becomes, you know, a little bit, um, it kept, you know, it sort of uh, spreads the idea around or something. So I think no, that's, that's, that's actually a great idea. The whole whiteboard thing. Cause usually, you know, I'm trying to do, to do it in the most boring way, right? but, but I, I never thought of applying these principles to, to something like that. And I think that could have a huge impact because then it's not just you learning and understanding those things. That is an important part, but also having everybody else really see what's important instead of just yeah. having a bulleted list. We have this, you know, diagram that connects these thoughts and ideas and stresses certain certain things, and it will help everybody in the room retain that information. Yeah, I think um, a lot of the things that I find are helpful in communicating ideas are context. So, understanding a context, like we're using this hardware, these are our users, this is how they're getting to our application. You know, maybe it's a Windows app, maybe it's a web app. Like all those things have an impact, like on what your expectations are for like speed. So, like if I got a Windows app. 
I expect that thing to be blazing fast, right? It's running on mm-hmm. native hardware and it's built for that tool. Like I have a little bit more, you know, understanding for a web app, maybe being a little bit slower. So, I mean, those kind of contexts make a difference in how you plan your application or whatever you're making. So um, I think, yeah, that this ability to map it out and, you know, there might be bullet points or bullet lists in, in that diagram too. It doesn't have to all be drawn but once you have sort of this whole language you can use, it gives you the ability to really express yourself. And, you know, not only is it for understanding ideas, but like you're saying, it's communicating ideas to others. And that's a huge part of a developer's job, right? To communicate to fellow developers what you're thinking so they everybody gets on the same page. It saves tons of cycles trying to solve these problems, right? Absolutely. Very cool. Um, is there anything else you wanted to make sure that uh, we talked about? Boy, you know, I think you guys covered, you were very uh, thorough in covering this. Uh, I really like your questions. Um, yeah. I think the last, the thing I would part with uh, as a last thought was um, we, if you're not an artist, um, I think you can, you guys can tend to be hard on yourselves. I would say give yourself lots of grace. Um, understand that, you know, if you look at work that I've done or maybe somebody else, I've been doing this for like 20 years. Like I've been drawing my whole life. And I've had an opportunity to refine it. Like, I would never expect to, like, learn Node or, you know, C-sharp or something like that in a weekend and suddenly be, like, world yeah, class, right? Like, I would understand. Like, I'd be going to the I would be going to the computer science without the computer to, like, understand the concepts and expect that I would take, you know, months or years to get to that level. Like, I don't have those expectations. So, in the same way, once you start drawing, like, don't put yourself up against other people that have been doing it for years. It's just unfair to both of you, right? So mm-hmm. um, be graceful to yourself and sort of laugh, like be willing to laugh at like when you draw funny stuff, like it's just fun to kind of see what crazy stuff comes out of your head and laugh at it and just move on because sometimes sometimes the greatest ideas come from that kooky stuff that you can't predict. So I think uh, yep. that's, that's the big message is focus on the ideas, not your art skill and uh, give yourself lots of grace as you learn it. Yeah, actually that, that might be one of the most important things. And in fact, you know, I'm kind of flipping through the the pages in the book as we're as we're talking here. And if we look at, you know, around if we're, I'm looking at the, the first book, the sketch note handbook around page like 156, like drawing people, which, you know, I have never been able to do. <laughs> but I when I was going through the book, I'm like, oh, OK, I, I followed the directions. I'm like, I almost didn't believe what I was drawing. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like, I actually drew a person that looks like a person like I can barely draw a stick figure to save my life. And and this, that you just made it so easy. So being able to draw like different objects, you know, yeah. you go through here and you talk about how to do that. And then a couple different types of uh, typography that are really, really simple. And so you, you like train somebody on how to draw. Like you don't even have to, you don't even say like, now just keep practice, practice, practice. Like it, it it's not even, I'm sure that's an element of it, but you're yeah. like, listen, you know, just if you want to draw this thing, here's how you do it really simple. You know, like draw two circles and connect this and boom, you have a telephone or something. Yeah. And, uh, and it works. Yeah. I think, you know, it absolutely works. It's very encouraging because, um, you know, when you strip away sort of the art expectations or performance stuff and you're Mm -hmm. just doing ideas, like you can get away with like stick people, like who cares? I mean, it represents a person and, you know, credit goes to Dave Gray for that method that you're talking about. He taught me that years ago and I still use it now. And it's fun to teach people because, you know, these uh, simple uh, drawing skills are really easy to pick up and they make it easy for you to express. And if you want to go deeper and get drawing books, well, go ahead, man. That's, you know, there's no reason that you can't do that if you really get into it and you can make yourself even better, but you don't, there's no requirement to be an artist. So that's, it's kind of nice to break things down into simpler things and simpler ways of expressing yourself. Absolutely. 
Okay, so let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. So my pick of the week is something that I think is useful. Um, so you know how there's there's like a million different uh, tools out there for for building applications, and and we always hear of like you know the the JavaScript verb of the week. Uh, so the thing that I found this week was called uh, Travis CI. So it's a uh, Travis Continuous Integration. So this is basically a build server, but it is basically a build server as a service. I don't even think you can download this thing and run it locally. If there is a way to do that, I haven't found it. But this is just like the simplest way to uh, point at your GitHub repo. If it's a public repo, the builds are actually free and um, it will grab the source code. It will run a really simple build process against that. So if it's like a Node.js build process, um, you can just put a, a file in your source code that says, hey, this is a Node.js project. Here's the version I need you to build this with and you know some other simple commands. And I got this thing up and running. It was actually the first on my first try, I had a successful build process working for one of my applications. And then this thing can also do the deployment. But the reason that this is my Azure pick of the week is what is really cool about this, since this is basically free for uh, all of your public GitHub projects, what you can use this for is whenever you're using something like an Azure uh, free website or a shared website or, or even just a, any kind of Azure website, you can use this as your build process and Azure will do that build process for you. You can point Azure at a GitHub repository, but the advantage of doing it this way is that this, all the CPU resources this uses, it won't count against your, your quota. So if you have a free website on Azure, they give you, you know, it's really strict quotas. It's really just to throw something out there that's not gonna get a lot of traffic. And what ends up happening is if you have um, a really involved build process, for your application, what'll end up happening is it'll eat up that whole build quota for you know that five minute period or whatever. And we've run into the issues with that on like the, the MS Dev show. So we ended up having to do you know dedicated instances and then our costs go up. So using something like this makes it so that that build process is just really um, you know offloaded to this whole service. And then Azure actually all it has to do is host out that static content. Uh, so we'll have a link to Travis CI in the show notes. And then also have a link to the uh, the the MS build, uh, Dev Show build script because I I switched over our website to use this so you can actually see the script that we use to build the site and uh, the MS Dev Show even though we we actually get a, a fair amount of traffic now um, it's actually running as a shared website so I don't I don't recall what the costs are on that it's something like uh, I don't know I think it's less than twenty bucks a month right Carl Do you... I, I wanted to say it was like nine yeah I thought it was like nine or 13 or something. It's somewhere on that. It's, you know, it, it's, it's almost, it's pretty trivial. So we're able to run, you know, a, a, a pretty, um, uh, you know, a fairly busy site on, uh, on a shared host. And I have another website that ends up getting uh, well over 10,000 visitors a month. And I'm also running that as a, as a shared host. Um, and that one actually has some, some .NET code on it, but, um, yeah. So for, for not a lot of money, you can, uh, you can run a, a site like this and, and offload your build process. So I recommend checking that out. Uh, and Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? Uh, this week, it was released that uh, Skype uh, has a beta version available for Windows 10 mobile. Okay. And uh, what's really cool is it's actually getting some really good reviews. A lot of people uh, are finding out that it it's really matching what the desktop has. And it, that's really encouraging because this is the universal uh, application. Uh, it's it's not yet matched the one that's in the, uh, you know, in the Windows 10 store, but... Uh, it's it's very encouraging. Oh wow, this is this looks really nice. Does this work? Um, this works for calls then too, audio and video. Yeah. Okay. Calls and video. Okay. As well. Finally, because because honestly, like the old universal Skype app was it, it was rough. Yeah, it, was, it was never anything to write home to or home about. So 
This is promising. Yeah, it looks really polished and it looks like it has more features than the Windows 8 Skype version as well. So excellent. Well, that's awesome. That's exciting. Okay, and then, uh, Carl, what are you for the dev tip of the week? So the dev tip of the week actually came inspired by you, Jason, by a question that you gave me. Uh, You said you were trying to find out more information about using Apache Cordova to build Windows apps on Windows 10. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I originally didn't give you, you know, I gave you a quick answer, but then I was able to find out that there's beta support for it. But now what's really cool is... uh, the dev tip is there's a Channel 9 video showing exactly how to build a Windows 10 application using Adobe Cordova. So if for those of you who are uh, Apache Cordova, so if, for those of you who aren't familiar with what that is, it lets you write HTML and JavaScript and get a cross-platform app out of it. So you can get an iOS app, an Android app. Well, one of the outputs now could be Windows 10 in a universal Windows platform. So you can get all that stuff with like your live tile, you know, the responsive uh, adaptive controls and all of that stuff so that's really cool and there's a video put out by microsoft on how to do all that well thank you carl uh and then oh okay and then there's this game that we play mike so what i need you to do i need you to pick a number between one and four and you could pick one or four if you want it is between one and four inclusive we have a lot of people that write in uh to clarify that so go ahead well for some reason the number three popped in my head okay So this is a game for kids. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Would you rather have to try to fight off a mean dog with a full super soaker squirt gun without more water for refills or with 20 cans of silly string? Hmm. (laughs) Boy, so I have to choose one of those two. Yeah. So you get a a full super soaker squirt gun and those are pretty good now. Like the the ones back in the, you know, like 20 years ago were not so good, but they're, they're pretty darn good now. So um, I, without more water for refill. So I'm guessing you can fill. pick whatever super soaker, super soaker that you want. Sure. <laughs> so that would probably, if I think of, think through it logically, if I have a super soaker, maybe I can distract them long enough with shots to run for it. Yeah. Um, but the, on the other hand, if you use silly string and you get it in his mouth and his eyes, he'd be distracted and you could probably walk away. So I'm <laughs> going to go with the silly string. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And you, I mean, you have, you would, with 20 cans, I mean, you'd be, you'd have some stamina. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Carl, pick a number between one and four. I'll pick one. Okay. Would you rather swim in freezing water or swim in a warm swimming pool in which you know lots of children have been peeing? Ah, uh, cold water. <laughs> How cold? So it says freezing water. So freezing so water. So we're going to say like it, maybe it's salt so water I, and it's 30 I, degrees. <laughs> I, I, I'm figuring like polar plunge kind of, you know, p- okay. what people do at, around the first uh, around here. Yeah, which is a, a Wisconsin sport, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay, very cool. So, Mike, where can uh, people find you? And and actually, I guess what I'm going to say is everybody should go out. They should buy. I think they should go out and buy that first book. Totally worth it. I think it's um, it's not like the normal tech book that, that people are used to. And I, I think that's a good thing. So everybody should go do that. But where where should people go to find more information about you and sketchnoting? Well, I think the best place, the first place to go is uh, my website, roadesign.com. And uh, what I've been doing for the last several months is I started doing a, a bi-weekly newsletter. So every two weeks, um, I sort of tell where I'm heading and what I'm doing. Um, and then uh, I try to collect interesting visual thinking stuff. It can be tips on pens. It can be types of pens. It can be drawing techniques, stuff that's related to sketchnoting. And I collect that in that newsletter and send it out um, every two weeks. So that's uh, if you go there and sign up for the newsletter, that's a great way to let me keep you updated on different stuff. Uh, if you go there now, you'll see that um, one of the recent posts were the sketchnote video podcasts 
that Carl okay. mentioned. So those are up. They're on both uh, uh, YouTube and Vimeo. So if you have a preference, you can watch those. We do a variety of drawing techniques. We interview some people, and I critique some sketch notes. So you can see me breaking down what somebody's done. Um, if you want to reach out and sort of have a discussion, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and you can find me at Rodesign. And, uh, that's which is R-O-H-D-E-S-I-G-N, which I just realized is very clever, by the way. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's got your last name and design in it, but you're sharing the, the letters. That's yeah. really cool. That was, uh, I ended up uh, coming up with that for an uh, uh, identity project I did back in college, and I realized that the two overlapped really well. So it's, I've just used it ever since. So mm-hmm. it works out really well. So I'm pretty active on uh, Twitter, on Instagram. And so you can reach out to me there. Uh, the other place I think I would recommend if you want to see sketchnoting uh, samples is the other site that I run called sketchnotearmy.com. And mm-hmm. I run that with my friend Mauro Ticelli. He's sort of the chief operating sketchnoter. So he takes in all the submissions and makes sure all the everything's running. He's an IT guy, so he's really great at that. And you can go there. You can see uh, all different kinds of samples of sketchnotes that other people have done. Uh, what might be interesting is if you go to the archives, there's a one archive called First Sketch Notes, and you can see samples of what people have done when they give sketchnoting a try. And it goes, it varies all over the place, but people are okay. really excited. So if you uh, if you do sketchnoting and you want to share it with people and encourage them in what you're doing, uh, there's a submission there, and you can submit and uh, get your stuff up. So that's, that's those really are the cool. places I think I, I would recommend, and um, and I think it's uh, worth worth checking out. Okay, very cool. Yeah, Carl, what we should do? We should grab. Um one of uh, one of his pictures of sketch notes and put that in our show notes so that when people go out to our site they can they can visually see what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And any uh, any sketch notes you see on Sketch Note Army, feel free to grab those and use those. Those are we're definitely okay. up there trying to promote other people. So, okay, very cool. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at wpdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com/ytechie. So, Mike. Once again, thank you so much for coming on here and, um, you know, expanding, uh, you know, I guess the, uh, you know, our horizons as far as, uh, you know, getting outside of the code and, and just thinking about ideas and teaching and learning and those types of things. It's very interesting. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. 